Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plushcare. Plushcare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and a warm welcome to the Friday Five, my weekly chat from the world of well-being with some news, some views and this week a very insightful and emotional insight into the life of a cancer patient who also just happens to be a media doctor. She recently diarised her own experience having been treated for colon cancer. Uh, Do please make sure you have a box of tissues at the ready as it is a very heartfelt and raw discussion. More of which in a moment. But first, a bit of news about some distinctly dodgy dealings in the world of food supplements. And as regular listeners will know, I am a fan of many a food supplement, especially some of the newer and more advanced nutrients designed to help us live well for longer, such as NMN and glutathione and the like. And many of these are pretty pricey. Well, several of the brands that I've recommended in the past also use innovative delivery systems such as liposomal technology. Now, liposomes are something that have been around in the beauty world for decades. I remember first writing about them, oh gosh, 30 or more years ago as a junior beauty editor. And they're a very interesting way of transporting an ingredient into the skin or in the case of a food supplement into the body. Well, under the microscope, liposomes look like tiny, tiny bubbles. They're made of a fatty membrane and then filled with whatever needs transporting into our cells. In the case of supplements, they are most often filled with ingredients such as vitamin C or glutathione, to name just two. And because they bypass the gut, they are absorbed directly into the body's cells, making them a far more effective and powerful way of taking your vitamins. But liposomal supplements are expensive. And like so many areas of food supplementation, this is open to fraudulent activity and misinformation unless buying from reputable brands. Well, this week has seen the release of details surrounding some legal action brought by Altriant, makers of several excellent liposomal supplements, who took various supplement brands to task for claiming their products contained liposomes. Well, in fact, they had been independently tested and found to either have low 
or in some cases no liposomal content. Well, on the basis of this, Ultriant made a complaint to the ASA, who ruled that those who falsely market their products as liposomal must remove their liposomal claims for the benefit of consumers. So that is good news for all of us. And you may remember that I did a podcast a while back on vitamin C with Dr. Thomas Levy in America. He's a cardiologist, vitamin C expert, and also a consultant for Live On Labs who make many of these liposomal supplements. And he says, quote, this is an important day for the liposomal vitamin industry and for consumers. Liposomal supplements are a fascinating technology for delivering maximized absorption. But, quote, buyer beware, there is more fraud in liposomal supplements than in any other type of supplement I have seen. That says Dr. Thomas Levy. So there you go. Well, if you're concerned about any liposomal products that you may have bought and spent a lot of money on, do check out the scientific research on the brand's own websites. And you can also do your own little at-home test because liposomes do not dissolve in water. So if you mix the supplement in a small glass of water, you should find that it doesn't dissolve, but it stays in some kind of semi-gel-like state. Well, the two brands that I buy from, and I use liposomal vitamin C and glutathione, are from Ultriant, and I buy via their Abundance and Health website here in the UK. And I also buy from Youth and Earth, direct from their website. And yes, I know both brands are a bit more expensive, but I feel reassured that I am getting the real deal, which ultimately obviously is the best value when compared to shelling out on something that doesn't actually work. And both websites do give my wellbeing community here a generous Liz Loves discount if used at their checkout. So that is Liz Loves, all in capitals, all in one word, on both the Abundance and Health and the Youth and Earth websites. You can head over to my website, lizarwellbeing.com, and look up Liz Loves if you would like more information on that. And actually, the glutathione supplement that I buy from Youth and Earth is a mango-flavoured glutathione liquid. That's the one that I take, and it's the one that I most often give to my children because it really does go a long way to disguise the, well, sulfurous and, frankly, pretty rank taste of pure glutathione on its own. Now, I mentioned earlier that you might need to have a box of tissues or at least a hanky at the ready for my guest this week as I chat to the GP and best-selling author, Dr. Philippa Kay, a doctor with a particular interest in children's, women's and sexual health. And in fact, she's written multiple books in these areas, including The M Word, Everything You Need to Know About Menopause, a topic, obviously, as you know, is very close to my heart. Well, Philippa's life changed in May 2019 when out of the blue, at the age of 39, she was diagnosed with bowel cancer. Now cancer-free, Philippa has detailed her journey in her latest book, Doctors Get Cancer Too, a frank diary which explores just how it feels to be a cancer patient after a long career of being on the other side of the desk. Well, welcome, Philippa. It's really a great privilege and pleasure to talk to you because you've just got so much knowledge as a GP, a medic specialising in children's health, women's health, sexual health. And I just know it's going to be a great chat. So welcome to my podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Now, I think I first came across you when you wrote the M word, everything you need to know about menopause. When did you put that one together? So that came out in 
the years go by (laughs) that came out in February 2020 so I wrote that in about 2019 on the back of my surgery being full of women in their 40s who were stopping driving because they were so anxious in the car who thought they had dementia that's what they were coming in to check for Um, and there was really it was really clear to me that there was a real need for so much more information about menopause to be out there. Absolutely. And presumably you've been delighted to see how that landscape has changed a little bit. Certainly. Absolutely. So it it feels like the shouting from the rooftops is beginning to be heard. There is a long way to go. And we are fighting, you know, decades, if not millennia, of a paternalistic society and women's health, shame and stigma. But it feels like maybe the tide is beginning to shift a little bit. Uh, oh, my gosh, let's hope so. Have you read um, Unwell Women by Eleanor Cleghorn that's just come out? No, I haven't. Oh, my but... goodness, terrifying. You would love it, but it's it, it's terrifying and and awful and shocking in equal equal measures. But I'm interested cool. to know, but before we move on to, to talk about your latest book, which is a completely different topic and one which I know we're going to find completely fascinating too, are you seeing a difference as a GP in your surgeries or with online consultations? What's the narrative now for midlife women coming in with menopausal symptoms? So I think it depends exactly sort of where you are and where you work in the socioeconomic and cultural demographics and all of that. Because, yes, there there has been a push on mainstream media, um, but not everybody um, is aware of mainstream media. And there's also beginning to be a push in secondary schools and secondary school, essentially teenagers are informing their parents. Um, And so I'm beginning to see a little bit of that. My daughter says, you know, X, Y, Z, what do you think? So there is still very clearly an idea that menopause is flushes and sweats um, only, which obviously isn't true. And the conversations that I have day in, day out about HRT, big bad wolf versus panacea, um, uh, you know, these are still daily conversations. And um, I th- as I said, I think there is a long way to go. But I think that I'm beginning to see women coming forward saying help. As opposed to before, women were coming forward saying help for something else entirely, and then we were connecting the dots. More women, I think, are coming forward saying, help, I shouldn't have to put up with this. Um, But we shall see. Yeah, and there's just been some great work. I was actually looking at um, Dr. Louise Newton. I was looking at her Instagram this week, and she's talking about HRT saying, And I quote here, HRT today still carries a very negative stigma that it can cause breast cancer. However, there are no studies showing that any type of HRT is associated with a statistically significant increased risk of developing breast cancer. In addition, there are many benefits from taking HRT. Absolutely. And I think that that there are some things that we've sort of always been told there are some things which you perceive as a truth whether or not it's a truth you know so for example when I started medicine there was definitely an idea amongst my patients that if you hadn't had a baby you couldn't have a coil and that it seemed yes it seemed like everybody's mothers or grandmothers had had this idea and that had been passed down and so it hadn't even occurred to people that they could if they hadn't um, had children or didn't want children or whatever Um, and so you were sort of fighting against something that people definitely perceived to be true and so you had you have to work harder to get there as opposed to starting from a neutral stance and I think that's very true about HRT and so the way I always start my 
conversations is there are lots of options available and not all of them involve hormone. But in order to make the decision about what's right for you, we need to talk about all of them. And that includes HRT. And then there people tend to be a little bit more open to hearing the conversation. And then once they've heard, they can then make their choices. Brilliant. Now, obviously, in that post I read from from Dr. Newson, she talks about breast cancer. And that's cancer is, in fact, the main subject of our conversation today, because your latest book, Doctors Get Cancer Too, is an extraordinary book. I mean, it's a really frank diary written from the perspective of of a cancer patient rather than a cancer doctor. Why did you decide to write the book? and, And what what was your journey really with that? I didn't decide to write it at all. <laughs> That's I did not decide to write a book about having cancer. I could not stop the words coming out. Um, I have always found writing to be rather therapeutic. And people always said to me, you know, you were a junior doctor when you started writing books. How did you have the time? How do you have the time now? I was like, but that's what I do all day is I sort of convert medicalese into English. And um, so to do that with my knowledge is something that, that sort of flows for me. And I find it quite relaxing. And when it came to having, and I hadn't written a diary since I was a little girl in a sort of padlock way of, you know, mum made three peas. Um, and, um, but when I was diagnosed with cancer, I did not know what to do with the thoughts in my head. And there were lots of them. And they were very complicated and conflicting. And so I dumped them. And I dumped them every single day, sometimes twice a day, three times a day, onto the screen. Because the screen never tried to fix me. It never said you're boring me. It never cried back. You know, I could repeat myself. And and so I did it entirely for me with no um, idea or instinct or anything that I would ever use it for anybody else. Um, And then the M word came out during my treatment. And I began to be approached by this online menopause community and I saw how amazing that was. And as time progressed and I began to see the benefits of people sharing their stories and that that's what other women needed to hear, um, I began to think, well, maybe I could share my story um, and maybe that would help some people. And then I hummed and hawed about it for about three months because the idea of putting my soul um, out there was terrifying. And because we all have a public persona, whether or not you're in the public eye, that you have a public persona when you go into Tesco. Um, and when I am a doctor, be it a doctor on telly or a doctor in my surgery, I'm very much in that role. And this was going to put myself out there as Philippa the person. Um, and I was very frightened of that so it took me a long time to come around to it um and then I began to just think if it makes somebody else feel less alone because I felt terribly lonely the entire time um and I actually still do about lots of it um but if it helps other people feel less alone then this is worth doing I was absolutely terrified going on this morning talking about my cancer and I was terrified to have the book published but what has come back has been utterly astounding um in in the responses of people and I am so very glad that I have done it um however when my friends and family say that they've got it I say 
thank you very much. You don't need to read it or we don't need to talk about it. Um, because it's one thing having complete strangers read the insights of your brain. And it's another thing when it's your mum. Yes, absolutely. Oh my goodness. I, I can relate to that. And the first diary entry that's published details the moment of diagnosis. Tell us a little bit about that day. So it wasn't something, a cancer had never really been mentioned. So, um, it wasn't anything that anyone was looking for. Now, I appreciate that my job, essentially, when you walk through my door um, into my surgery or I pick up the phone to you, I have the entirety of medicine as a possibility, right? And then you say, oh, my nose hurts. And then I sort of narrow down to ENT and then I sort of keep going, right? And, and we're always on the lookout for cancer. And we're always look out for, the, the, for those red flag symptoms that are going to make us say two week wait. And I didn't have any. Um, and so when I had gone to my GP, um, I had gone with some pelvic pain that sort of started after the birth of my youngest daughter. Um, and I've had three cesarean sections. Um, and I had some sort of generalized pain and they sort of said well you know it's probably scar tissue and that's what I thought it was um, and I was 38 39 um, and then it began to get sort of much worse and began to interfere with my life and so I went back and they said okay well we'll do an ultrasound scan and then we'll send you to a gynecologist um, and when I went to see the guy and Scottish doesn't show up very well on ultrasound scans I went to see the gynecologist and I am forever grateful to him because he examined me and he said well I think that you're very likely to just be full of scar tissue because I'd also had my appendix out and I'd had an ectopic pregnancy I'd had a lot of pelvic surgery and he said, but I'm a bit worried that your womb might be stuck to your bowel. So we need to have a bowel surgeon involved. So go and see a bowel surgeon first. And I went to see the bowel surgeon. He went, well, yeah, probably it's that. But we should just do a colonoscopy just to check. And I remember I did the bowel prep and I was really cross about it because it's yes. not very pleasant. And I'd had to take time off work and I didn't want to have, you know, to be sedated and, and whatever else. Yeah. Um, and he walked in to do the consent form and he went, no, do you know, a one in 10,000 chance we're going to find something. We'll just, you know, you're going to have this other operation and it'll be fine. And so we, I went into the colonoscopy suite and um, they pushed the sedation and I lay back to sort of close my eyes and relax and looked up at the screen and there it was. And, and you knew, presumably, I knew. what you were looking I knew. And it was uh, from that moment on, it was like there was no sedation at talk as sort of adrenaline and everything else just yes. just fought and I looked at the surgeon and as his eyes came up to meet mine I thought oh and the room I remember really clearly that the room got quieter and quieter and someone came with a tissue and someone came to hold my hand and the kinder that the nurses got not that they weren't kind before but the kinder that they got the more I knew mm. and and we didn't really, no one said the word cancer at that point. And then he said, I'm just going to try and get past it. And it, and it began to really hurt. Um, and he said, I don't need to hurt you. You're going to have to have a major operation. I don't need to hurt you anymore. And then I thought, oh, you're really about to hurt me, aren't you? Um, and then he gave me my first tattoo because I haven't had a tattoo. And I knew very much that my mother would disapprove of oh. tattoos. But you tattoo oh. the mark inside, right? And so the no. next thought in my head was, I'm going to have to tell my mum I've got a tattoo. She's going to be furious. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I knew. 
And then when, so he said, you know, well, I'm going to meet you back in the room. I'm just going to wipe my nose, meet you back in the room. And I hadn't even got my husband with me. because I was going to say, you must have normal. just so unprepared. Just thinking Completely unprepared. And my mum was upstairs sort of waiting to take me home. Yeah. And they went to get her. And um, she took one look at me and she said, what's wrong? Did it hurt? And she got to me before the surgeon did. And I said to her, I've got cancer. Mm. And that to me wow. was a moment that was almost as bad as me working it out myself because somehow as a child and that's what you do when you get ill you revert to child mode right um is that I had to tell my own parent that I had cancer and she came and she put I was still on the bed and she put her arm around me and did not let go oh. And um, there were lots of conversations and lots of people came in and they were arranging other scans and things. Um, but she did not let go. Mm. And then he came in, the surgeon, and he did what doctors are taught to do, which is you don't want to say to someone, you've got cancer. You want to say to somebody, you know, you had a lump in your breast and you know that you came in and that we were doing some investigations. And, you know, one of the things that we were looking for, and generally at that point, the patient already knows. Mm. And so they come to the realization themselves, mm -hmm. which you then confirm. And it's slightly gentler okay. than throwing the grenade in the life, right? Yeah. So he came in and he said, well, you know, you came for a test. And I said, no, let's just say it. I've got cancer. <laughs> Happy time. Um, and he said yes and I felt the doctor wall descend right. and I went okay what's next and that doctor wall is it all doctors have it whether or not they're aware of it or I think you know nurses do healthcare professionals do that when we see stuff that's terrible and we see humanity acting terribly and we see we see awful things all the time and so you have to have a double wall and that doesn't mean that you're hard. It means that you protect yourself. Yeah. Um, and we are always thinking, what next? And that's what I did. I put the wall down and I said, what next? So you gave yourself a wall between yourself and your cancer diagnosis then? As, yeah. As, as, as an individual. yeah. And when I wrote actually about my cancer, it was always a he. Not because I have anything against men or women or any gender. It was nothing to do with that. When you write a book about pregnancy, you refer to the fetus as he to differentiate from the she as the mother, right? Yes. And that's sort of what, what the copy editors always say to do. And I needed to differentiate it from me yes. because it wasn't me. Yeah. It, I didn't do it on purpose. You know, it, it wasn't me. It was something that was happening to me inside of me. And I needed to differentiate that from me. And I, I was talking so to a friend, actually, just as a sideline, who was re diagnosed recently with prostate cancer. And he said that the way he frames it and thinks about it is by saying to himself, my prostate has cancer. My prostate has a tumour. I yeah. don't have cancer. Yeah. So I need yeah. to enable and help my prostate to to deal with this and look after my prostate, which kind of kind of removes it, I guess. It puts it one one step away. So for you it was colon cancer, wasn't it? Yes, bowel cancer, yeah. But, but, do, do, do you know any reason why? I mean you were fit, young, healthy, you know, 30 something. Yeah. So my risk at the time was symptoms. I mean, that's extraordinary, mm -hmm. isn't it, really? Yeah. So I was an extraordinarily lucky pickup. Um and I'm very grateful for that lucky pickup, which sounds like an odd thing to say. I'm grateful that I had cancer. I'm grateful that I had 
cancer at a time when it could be diagnosed and treated. Um, but I didn't have change in bowel habit and I didn't have bleeding and I didn't have and I didn't have. Um, but uh, what was then found out was that I had a gene that doubles my I have a gene that doubles my risk of bowel cancer. So I went from one in 10,000 to one in 5,000. Mm-hmm. Still unlucky. Yeah. Yeah. You talk about telling your mother and your mother being there and that kind of child parent relationship. Your own children at the, at the time, yeah. I think, were four, seven and 11. That's How right. did you go back and explain it to them? So I spoke to my husband um, because once I'd had the colonoscopy, they then wanted various other tests that day and I wasn't coming home for hours. Um, and I said to him, you need to wait, wait for me. And I had a CT colonoscopy next, which was when they um, essentially put air up your bottom and take a CT scan. And I was getting changed afterwards. And I was naked on the floor of this changing room. And I rang my best friend, who's a child and adolescent um, psychotherapist. And I said, I need you to put on your not doctor face, but your professional face and just listen to me for one minute because I'm about to go home and tell the children that I've got bowel cancer, tell me what to say. Um, and uh, she could do it, which was good. But basically, I, I knew what I had to say. I just needed someone to back me up, which was about being honest. And I have been incredibly honest with my children the whole time. And you can be honest and child age appropriate. So I went home and I said, um, we were sitting at the top of the stairs, all five of us. And I said, mummy um, went to the doctor today and they told her that she has bowel cancer and cancer is um, some abnormal, unhealthy cells like the size of a golf ball and they need to take it out Um, and mummy's going to be in hospital for a week to 10 days and then she might have to have some medicine Um, and mummy's going to be very tired because all her energy is going to be going into looking after her tummy Um, but the doctors are going to do everything that they can um, and mummy's going to do everything that she can to get better and the four-year-old said who's going to take me to school, which is entirely age appropriate. The seven-year-old came instinctively, his arms came up towards me and then he recoiled before he got there. And he said, you can't catch cancer, can you? Oh, do you think your hair's going to fall out? It'd be really interesting to see a bald mummy. And the the 11-year-old was reading a book um, and in the book, the mother had cancer and he had other questions um, later. And the whole way through, I was very honest. So when they said the night before surgery, you know, they were very upset. I think more at the thought of the fact that I was going away for for what felt like a long period of time, a week to 10 days, and that they weren't necessarily, and the the surgeon had said to me, they're not going to come and see you for three or four days. You're not going to be ready. Um, And so I sort of had to prep them. And they said, are you scared, mummy? And I said, are you scared? And they said, yes. And I said, me too. And they said, what are you scared of? And at that point, for that particular surgery, I wasn't scared I was going to die. I was scared later I was going to die. But at that point, I wasn't. I said, I'm scared it's going to hurt. But they're going to give me some medicine to make it better. Um, And I'm scared because I haven't had it before. And I'm scared because of X, Y and Z. And we cried together. And what that does is means that they aren't alone in it. I can't make it better. I could never make it better. I couldn't make it better for myself. I couldn't make it better for them. But I can be with them in it. And 
And, you know, to borrow Glennon Doyle's, we can do hard things. We can do hard things, but it's far easier to do them if we're not on our own. And that's what I tried to give my kids. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I know there'll be many people listening who may not have had cancer but are supporting a loved one through their diagnosis and treatment right now what advice would you give them to be that supportive person that all feelings are valid even when they conflict um and that you don't need to fix it because you can't fix it so when our loved ones are in pain of whatever kind they are in we want to make it better that's what we want to do and so we give solutions and we say you know, when someone rings and says, I don't want to go to chemo today, you say, you have to, you're strong, you can, we'll get an ice cream or whatever. Um, and actually, what I needed and what I can see from my patients is for someone to go, it's bad today, isn't it? Mm. And, you know, yes, it's hard. You don't have to go in skipping and laughing and jumping. you got to go, but it sucks. Um, and so to listen and not try and fix, which is essentially the same thing as I say for my kids, is that to be there with you in it. And the reason why it's so hard and so hard for us watching our friends, our family, is because it hurts. And you feel a tiny bit of their pain, and that's called countertransference in psychotherapeutic terms, that you feel just the tiniest bit, like when someone's furious and you begin to get annoyed, it's because a tiny bit rubs off on you. And so when we do it with with um, people with cancer or other serious illnesses, our urge is always to fix. I don't need you to fix. I need you to hold my hand. And so that's what I would say to anybody who's trying to support listen and say it sucks I'm with you what's going to help not try x y and z 
Do you think there were any advantages for you being a doctor in this situation or was that a disadvantage? Sort of is was ignorance bliss perhaps and you were almost too aware of what could happen and what was going mm-hmm. on? So I, th- I think that it, it's there are pluses and negatives. Um, first of all, for me, the hospital is a safe place. And I know for many people it isn't. But for me, a hospital is a place where people are working together to do everything they can to make you better. And I know that because I'm on the other side. I also know that when you are under the surgeon's knife, the hospital could be burning down and their only priority is you. So I felt very safe from that point of view. I also understand medicalese and that's my language. So that is comforting to me. So those things are good. However, um, I am, even if I was a lower colorectal surgeon that still doesn't mean that I am my own doctor and as I said before doctors are always taught to think about the next step and the worst case scenario and for me turning that off turning off worst case scenario turning off what if this doesn't work what if this doesn't work was exceptionally difficult um and that in ICU when things were difficult when things were going wrong that to turn off the part of my brain that was going, why is nobody here with this drug? Or I'm going to need this or something else is happening. That has been like, really hard the whole way. Um, but just as being a doctor affected me as a patient, I do think that being a patient has affected me as a doctor. Um, and that I think is the better. better. Um, and that is the ability to sit in the silence and to hold the hand metaphorically. And I can pinpoint points that to one moment in the first in my first ICU stay and it was the middle of the night and my heart was doing funny things and you know it, my kidneys weren't happy and and it was it was not a good place and the ICU um doctor came in and he sat on my bed and he held my hand and he went pretty shit tonight isn't it oh my goodness and that's it yeah. and as I said and I keep, and I, I'm aware I'm repeating myself, sorry, <laughs> but that moment was enough because it meant that somebody understood. Mm-hmm. And so that when my patients come in and they say, I'm afraid, or this is happening, and this is happening, and this is happening, and I say, that sucks, doesn't it? You see their eyes come up to meet you, mm-hmm. that just for a moment, that they feel that someone's on their side. Yeah. So it works both ways, advantages and disadvantages. <laughs> it is absolutely fascinating and I love the fact that it was written as a diary because it does really take you through this journey and of course you were diagnosed before the pandemic struck but much of your actual treatment took place during lockdown what was that like I wouldn't recommend it we don't go back there please god so um I had my first surgery and chemotherapy um before the pandemic ended and then there was this I had a stage two bowel cancer there was this hope that at the end of that which was sort of January February 2020 that I would be done and they found more um lesions on my stands and I ended up having surgery in May so right in the height of the pandemic in September um 2020 and that September was a huge surgery I was in ICU for 10 days I was in hospital for 15 entirely on my own yes um and in May, I came back to homeschooling, you know, and, and there was all of those things and without that other support. And I think that when we look back on the pandemic and we look about the things that we 
did right or did wrong or had to do but caused other harms potentially and you know and we know about direct and indirect harms the trauma of being on your own is huge oh, yeah and the legacy of mental health that, that, that the nation and the world has been left with is is just yeah. isn't it yeah um and i think that that's not just for the patient but also for your family members that they they felt entirely helpless that you know there was literally nothing that they could do i mean to not be um, able, you, you know you talk about the importance of somebody sitting on your bedside and holding your hand but not yeah. to be able to have to be in intensive care and not and so frightened and having had all that you know dreadful trauma and the recurrence of of, uh, so of, I think I that there were there back. were definite now I look now I look back with hindsight there were there are some things which I think potentially were useful so one technology as long as you control the technology um is good two I was very clear what I wanted from my friends which was I'm sorry if I can't answer the message but I really would like that every time I pick up my phone someone sent something and I asked them to write me letters um because a physical letter is something special that someone's taken the time to write yes. um, and they sent me letters and so the postman appears in the hospital um, and he would appear sort of every day about two or three o'clock and that was something I really looked forward to and I knew that they must have written the first ones before I'd even gone into hospital. Oh, what a um, great idea for somebody just so that, to say yeah. you know, if, if you're in extended stay in hospital please write please get people to write so yeah. every day you get that visit from the postman. Yes yeah, so it's like they're visiting so I think that helped and I think also there was an opportunity to entirely 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 turn inwards and say okay this is what I need to do now in order to survive this and go home mm. but those things are very firmly outweighed by the trauma of doing it on your own absolutely and presumably lockdown just making it worse and going back you said you had to go back to homeschooling <laughs> yes well, in October thankfully I didn't but in in May I had to go back to yes to to it's not just about the homeschooling it's about the noise and the bustle yes. uh, and three children and you can say mummy needs to rest but it's actually very hard to turn off the mummy head if they're all in the house all the time right and what you need to heal more than anything is rest and for me what I needed was quiet and I see you it's not quiet you're virtually tied to the bed with you know both between the catheter and the central line and the two drains and the you know the epidural and everything else but everything beeps and um there is no quiet and sleeping is really difficult I was going to say does it beep all the way through the night when you're trying to sleep when things aren't going right yeah um and and even if even if they sort of turn off the pulse noise there'll be an alarm when something goes wrong but sort of when the bag ends or when they need to change something or when this fluid ends there are beats and there's you know rustling and hustling and, and I see you as a noisy place um and, and I craved silence and and some kind of peace and it's very hard to find that in the ICU and it's hard to find that when your house is full yes. but what that also <laughs> meant was that support from my parents my siblings people that ordinarily would have walked to school walked my kids to school for me picked them up for me you know all of those things gone to tesco for me all of those things you know my sisters or my mum would have walked in take take them one look started clearing up and you know wash the knickers um and i would do the same for them but they weren't there because they weren't allowed because we were in whatever stage of restriction that we were in. Um, and so it was incredibly difficult. And I think that for anyone that's done it um, or 
who is still doing it. And I understand why we have to do it, because we have to keep people um, in hospitals safe. And if they would have given me a cough on top of everything else I had, you know, it would have tipped me over the edge. Um, but it does show you how incredibly resilient you can be mm. and when you need to be because survival instinct will kick in but that trauma is ongoing and it most definitely needs to be worked through and I am very open about the fact that I've been in therapy since about three months after my diagnosis and I still am in it now. Mm, interesting I'd like to come on to, to talk about that but can we just cover off the practicalities of the hospital trip because one of the bits that I love about your book is that it does have so many helpful pointers and bits of information at the back of the book you share for example your packing tips for going into hospital yeah. what what did you take with you when you were in so I learned from the first time um so, so and I remember actually writing that like the non the non-maternity edit of the hospital bag right because you when you're pregnant you spend a lot of time thinking about what's supposed to go in that bag and when you're going in for major surgery you don't um so for, for me little things like having various different toiletry bags and knowing what was in each of them so that I could say bearing in mind that your ICU nurses are changing shifts every 12 hours and you can't move to be able to say my toothbrush is in the red bag and the red bag is on the top left of my big bag mm -hmm. and my phone charger is in the blue bag which is you know on the right hand side right oh, so it does yeah. make life a little bit easier from that point of view um and then to go soft everything that could possibly be soft needs to be soft because everything hurts so a soft hairband I've got big wild curly hair I didn't want it in my face but I also didn't want a hard hair bubble so soft hairbands soft hair bubbles um soft soft non-underwired bras I knew I wanted to wear a bra but I also knew that my belly would be hugely swollen and I went to MS and I said I'm not having breast cancer surgery but I'm having cancer surgery can you help um because I knew that I would feel sort of more like me a little bit if I had a bra on, um, which sounds funny, but sort of that was yeah. part of my yeah. thing. Um, and eye mask and earplugs and lip salve because your lips get dry and I wasn't allowed to eat for ages or drink. Um, you know, and so a list of things like that were really useful. But also I said to everybody, my phone is on silent. You look when you want to look. You don't call. You don't respond to the beck and call of the ping. You're in control over that. I think that's, you know, it, it's such good practical advice. And then coming home, similarly, is there anything for, for people to be aware of either for themselves coming back or for people who are looking after others coming out of hospital? Mm. Um, a few things. One, the, uh, I, I sort of tried to prep a little bit for the freezer. It's very I, I'm somebody that, that does find it difficult to ask for help. Um, but my family also know that when I say please help it means oh my god please help <laughs> mm -hmm. um so I asked and 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 when my kids were unsettled it was interesting because the first time you know within about 20 minutes of me telling various groups um and sort of my local faith group and my kids schools that I had cancer there were about six different meal rotors being offered um I'm part of the Jewish community and that's what we do um and so people were offering food and what my kids wanted was not random people's foods or my friend's food they wanted my food sure. they wanted to feel that mummy was still looking after them um so 
I said no to a lot of this food, but I was very sort of specific about saying to my mother-in-law or my mother or my sisters, which I knew that my kids would be happy eating um, about things like that. Um, and about planning in rest time, planning in your walk time. Um, and I was very clear to people um because people at the beginning started saying to me, well, what do you need? I'll do anything that you want. What do you need? I don't know. I don't even know how long it's going to take me to get out of bed today. I don't know how long it's going to take me to be able to walk from my bedroom to the bathroom and brush my teeth, never mind put on any clothes. Um, so I don't know what I need. And what you're trying to do is go, is ask me to give you something so that you feel better that you've done something. Nice. Um, and I can't deal with that. And then if you say to me, well, um, I'd like to come and I'd like to hear about everything that happened in the hospital. Well, okay, but maybe I don't want to talk about that right this second. So I started saying to people, um, please tell me when you're in Tesco. And I know that you're passing my door on the way home. Mm -hmm. Please tell me when you are in uh, wherever you are. Um, and then people started doing that for me. So if you were to say to me, I'm going to the supermarket, what do you want? I might have said nothing, don't worry. But if you rang me from the supermarket and said, I'm here and I'm passing your door because I'm going to the dentist, you know, up the road or whatever else. So let me, it's going to be no extra hassle. Mm -hmm. That sort of gave me permission to right. say, this is what I need. Yes. Yes. Interestingly, you talk about therapy and is that something that as a doctor you had ever considered before? Um, so I had some therapy when I was suffering with recurrent miscarriage um, and all I could think about was getting pregnant, staying pregnant, keeping babies, losing babies. Um, and so I'd had about a six month period of cognitive behavioral therapy, which I'd found very helpful, um, probably about or probably about a decade earlier. Um, and obviously I um, am aware of therapy and I talk about it to my patients all the time and I'm aware of what good it can do. Um, so I was always open to it. I wasn't open in that first week between diagnosis and surgery when people started saying, oh, you know, this charity will do you psychotherapy or, or whatever else, because I wasn't there. I was totally in, let's get to the hospital and let's start. Mm -hmm. And it took a little bit of time for me to get out of that mindset into now what? Um, and so I started going to therapy and in that first session, it was a 15 minute session. I think she said maybe three sentences and I just literally blurted out stuff that had been happening to me. Um, and therapy has been invaluable for me to process, um, to have that non-emotional response back. Because as I said, when we, when we love someone and they're sad and they tell you about something that makes them sad, if they're crying, you know, you, get upset too and I was always very aware of the emotional comeback that mm -hmm. that my feelings were inducing in other people um and to go somewhere where the other person had no well I mean they obviously did have a feeling but they, they I didn't get yes. anything back from that so from, was hugely helpful and is still hugely helpful and there is still a way to go your body heals or and there is still definitely I mean I have lots of symptoms from you can't remove so much of somebody's bowels and be left with nothing I had life-changing surgery um but the mind takes a long long time to heal 
And when you are told that you are cancer free, which I have been, it it feels a little bit like falling off a cliff as you go from survival mode into living mode and you haven't been in living mode for a while and you sort of begin to hope and plan and you move away from seeing your doctors and nurses sometimes almost every day to three months and then six months and how unsafe that all feels Mm. um and so there is definitely still work to be done and right now I'm actually quite open in saying that some of that work is about going back to the me that was in hospital on her own and holding her hand because there was no one else to provide that support but to understand that I could provide that support and working through that trauma. Well, Philippa, it's just extraordinary. It's so fascinating to talk to you. Thank you so much for sharing so much so openly. I'm sure that a lot of people, whether they're going through the journey themselves or that they have people close to them going through a similar situation, will find this extremely helpful. And very, very best of luck and best of health going forward. Now, you know, are, are, are you able to relax? Um. No. (laughs) Oh, yes. I've I've been able to laugh the whole way through. Um, But I think what's really important, I function, I exist, I I work, I love, I, you know, I have my family and I do everything that I want to do. Um, It's not quite over in my head or in my body, but, you know, I, I wanted to write to publish this because so many of those amazing, amazing, fantastic cancer diaries out there end with the person dying and they end with, with a, um, an epilogue written by, you know, the partner or the best friend or whoever and they're heartbreaking. And I wanted to end with the fact that I'm still here and I'm still here and I'm living because that is what the majority of us with cancer are going to do. Brilliant. Very positive, uplifting note to end on. Philippa, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure to have you on my podcast today. Thank you for having me. And Dr. Philippa Kay's book, Doctors Get Cancer Too, is out now. And many thanks again to her for sharing so much so openly here. And speaking of sharing, a couple of shares now from our own wellbeing community here. An email just in from Tammy in Somerset who says, amongst many things, she's talking about menopause awareness. She says, I would love to be able to get a specialist into work to speak or as part of a coffee morning at home. I'd like to raise money to part fund some specialist one-to-one consultations. I'd like to get books in the staff room. I'd like to make a group to share and talk about the brilliant information that you, Davina and Dr. Newson, are providing. I'd like to warn the 30-somethings of what's to come so they don't feel they're going mad as I did. I'd like for husbands and teenagers to have more information as they are so often at the end of mood swings. That is very true, Tammy. And I think all we can do is push forward. Love all your ideas. So, yep. Let's put that out there as some action points. And this also echoes the sentiments of Sir Rod Stewart, no less, who said last week how menopause classes should be made available for all men so they can learn more about what their wives and girlfriends are having to deal with so as to be more supportive. Brilliant. 
What do you think? Good idea, yes? Thank you for that, Sir Rod. Who would have thought, eh? Brilliant. Well, lastly, I've just picked up this little comment on the iTunes reviews. You're always very welcome to leave comments and reviews there. Um, This has come from Fab122, who says, I think this is referring to my last Friday Five with Alice Hart Davis when we talked about uh, Linda Evangelista and cosmetic procedures going wrong. And this is what she leaves a comment saying, thank you for sharing such a candid conversation with Alice. It was so fascinating to hear about these invasive techniques. I hadn't heard of some of these tweakments before. I can't say I would ever dabble in that world myself, but it's great to hear about them. As for the HRT update, thank you so much for this. I would be mortified if they took Estragel off the market. For me, it is working beautifully, although I did have a little hiccup with one bottle a few weeks ago. It was a gritty texture. Weird. Thank you again for all your hard work. Really, really appreciate it. Lots of love. Well, thank you very much indeed. Don't forget that if you do have any issues with Estragel, which is the gel form of estrogen made by Bessin's Healthcare, do drop them a line. Let them know about it. It's important that manufacturers are always aware of this kind of thing. But also do please report any adverse side effects or problems with any medical product or procedure or treatment to the MHRA. And you can do that easily on the free MHRA yellow card app. And that goes for anything that gives you an adverse reaction. Well, don't forget that you can connect with my team and me across a wide range of channels. We are on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, you name it. There's always lots going on, lots to say, lots to share. So feel free to join in as you choose. Until the next time we speak, have a good weekend and a great week ahead. Go well. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.